0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I am pleased to begin today's podcast by thanking Valerie R. and Mark L., who made donations directly to the salons so as to, uh, well, keep these podcasts coming your way. So, Valerie and Mark, I thank you on behalf of all of our fellow saloners who are going to be reaping the benefits of your kind donations. And a little announcement from the Burner podcast. Uh, A few weeks ago, the host of the podcast came by and we had a little chat. And uh, that's now posted as an interview on his podcast episode number 74. And you'll find it at www.burnerpodcast, all one word, burnerpodcast.com. And while I'm pleased to have an interview there with him, I believe that you'll find a lot of other interesting information about the Burning Man community and his programs. Even if you've never been to a burn, I think that, uh, well, you'll find the Burner podcast to be filled with all kinds of interesting conversations. And I'll put a link to that podcast in today's program notes, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. Now, there's one more announcement that I want to make before I introduce today's Terrence McKenna talk, and this has to do with my wonderful supporters at patreon.com. As you know, my supporters on Patreon have been making monthly donations that have made it possible for me to publish my latest book directly into the public domain. And you can get your own free copy of that book by going to lorenzohaggerty.com slash And there you can download the PDF version. And soon I hope to put up the free Kindle version as well. Now, most of my supporters on Patreon donate uh, oh, from $1 to $5 a month, with a few of them making somewhat larger monthly donations. And today, there are 60 of these wonderful people supporting my work. And I want to thank them also for indirectly supporting us here in the salon. You see, the last time that my wife and I had to move, I, well, I fell into a blue funk. And it took several months for me to get back in gear and restart these podcasts, After a disruption of searching for a new place to live, and packing our stuff, and moving, and getting resettled. I know that shouldn't be such a chore, but it seems that the older I get, the more difficult it becomes to adjust to the changes that uh, moving brings with them. So, for the last several months now, I've been using the donations from my patrons to help my two children get back on their feet after the recent hurricane in Florida. And I'm happy to report that all is well with them now, and their lives are back to normal. But, a week ago, our landlord told us that he was raising our rent by $400 a month. So if it wasn't for the help that my supporters on Patreon are furnishing, well, I'd probably be taking the salon off the air for a few months while I went through that moving process once again. But, guess what? The monthly contributions of those 60 people now add up to just over $400 a month. (laughs) So for the next 12 months at least, my wife and I will be able to remain where we are, and these podcasts from the salon are going to keep coming your way without an interruption. So you wonderful fellow saloners over at Patreon.com who are helping me with your comments and edits of my new book... Well, you're also keeping the salon open and providing a roof over my head in the process. I really don't know how to thank you. The best that I can do for now, I guess, is that every Monday evening from now on, from 7 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Pacific Time, I'll be available to visit with my Patreon supporters in a Zoom.us conference room. I've already posted the details on Patreon, and I'm looking forward to our first online visit later today. And how does this affect the salon, you may ask? Well, one of the things that I hope to do is to learn how to use Zoom.us well enough so that we could hold a few webinars here in the salon where I could invite some friends like uh, Matt Palamary, Bruce Damer, and others to join us for a free online conference that anyone who wanted to could join. And I'll be talking about these online meetings more in the future uh, once I learn how to use Zoom. But today I just wanted to publicly thank my wonderful supporters on Patreon.com. You have ensured that 2018 is going to be a great year for me and my family. Now, just when I think that I've heard about every idea Terrence McKenna made public at one of his workshops, a talk like the one that I'm about to play for you pops up. And yes, you'll recognize a few of the riffs that you've heard before, But for me, there is really something fresh and new in this talk. For one thing, there is a section where he gets more metaphysical than I'm used to hearing from him. And maybe it's just my imagination, but this could become one of my favorite talks of his. However, uh, you're going to have to decide things like that for yourself, huh? (laughs) Anyway, I, I know that we've all heard Terrence talk about the DMT experience many times before, but for some reason, I really like this one the best. Maybe it's uh, because he doesn't start out with the machine elves, uh, which I've never encountered, uh, although I've tried on many occasions. Instead, uh, he begins by describing that first visual of a chrysanthemum-like unfolding, and that description really hit home with me, uh, even though I saw it in different colors than he did. And that's something important to remember, I think. Many of these experiences are close to ineffable, you can't put words around them, and so any attempt to describe them uh, can sometimes throw people off uh, to the point where they begin thinking that maybe they didn't do something right if it didn't seem just the same way you described it. So always remember that these experiences are unique to each of us individuals, and what you bring to them has a lot to do with what you get out of them. Well, (laughs) I guess that was just a long way of saying that I really like this description of a DMT trip that you're going to be listening to Terrence give about 12 minutes from now.
1: In order to make sure we all understand the domain we're operating from here, I would like to talk a little about what it's like to be loaded because I think that's the ground zero of what we're talking about. Psychedelics are like any other uh, social phenomena. There are a lot of wannabes. There are a lot of people who are along for the ride. I'm sure the pagan community is no stranger to this phenomenon because there are certain residual spin-offs if you proclaim yourself pagan. That are hard to obtain any other way similarly for being psychedelic my notion of of the psychedelic cosmogony if you want to think of it that way is it's like a bullseye it's like a series of concentric circles and various substances place you in various quadrants of that mandala at various distances from ground zero, which is at the absolute center. And nature, in her bounty, has provided various coordination points. I mean, there's the cannabis coordination point, the opiate coordination point. Uh, the tropanes that were so important in European witchcraft, the solanaceous plants, hyalcyamine, those things. That's a different chemical family and a different uh, uh, group of plant families that these compounds occur in. And, in, you know, I've been at this fairly steadily since. 1964 and have tried to do everything with a certain level of attention and uh, uh, reverence because I think that you know it's all very fine to go armed with the knowledge of pharmacology dose-response LD50 and all that but I think as pagans and magicians we really understand that The mind can do anything and uh, there's a horribly frightening little passage in Jung somewhere where he says uh, the unconscious has a thousand ways to terminate a life that has become meaningless Uh, meaning you know you'll step in front of a streetcar or something so in my lifetime of looking at these things and being interested in many other things as well uh, heresies uh, obscure backwaters of art history and literature peculiar philosophies that rose and fell centuries ago in obscure parts of the world my theory of life's exploration is to run edges and i've mellowed over the years but i used to say if a book isn't a hundred years old you shouldn't read it if a person isn't dead you shouldn't worry about them if they Wrote in English. You shouldn't bother with them, <clears throat> so forth and so on. In the course of sorting out the as many peculiar and bizarre possibilities as life could offer me in many places, uh, my attitude was always critical. My attitude was always a show-me attitude. I don't believe in faith. I don't believe in belief. My favorite gospel story is the story of the Apostle Thomas, who was not present when Christ came the first time after the resurrection to the upper room. And then later Thomas came to the Apostles And they said, uh, the master has been here. And he said, you guys have been smoking too much of that red lab. And then Christ came again. But in this conversation with the apostles, Thomas said, unless I put my hand into the wound, I will not believe it. And then time passed. And then Christ came again to the upper room. And he said, Thomas, come forward, put your hand into the wound. And he did, and then he said, Lord, I am not worthy, so forth and so on. My conclusion about this story is that alone, among all humanity in all times and places, only one person ever touched the incorporeal body of God. Thomas, the doubter, touched because he doubted. It was not necessary that the believers should be vouchsafed to such a boon, but the doubter was awarded the supreme enlightenment. Okay, so much for that. So my, my, my thing has always been, whether you present me with a diet, a, a social arrangement, a society, a sexual conundrum, a work of art, my, my criteria is, is it shit or is it Shinola? And uh, I'm happy to give you the benefit of my personal uh, life's experience proceeding along those lines I want to talk about uh, what to my mind is the quintessential hallucinogen and consequently the quintessential spiritual and magical tool of this dimension and that is DMT dimethyltryptamine a compound that occurs in the human nervous system. It occurs in many, many plants. It is the commonest hallucinogen in all of nature. And I don't know how you got to where you are this afternoon, but the way I got here is uh, by testing and by hoping and by pursuing a magical, if that's the word, a miraculous, a transcendental ideal that over the course of life, experience strips from you. You know, you have to get a job. Your first love is not your last love. Slowly this pristine, shining belief in perfectibility is eroded by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune you know the dark oxen that turn the millstones of the world but I am here to tell you that it is real there is a doorway into another dimension Aladdin's lamp is real Fairyland land is real magic is real in the most real sense in the same sense that what we call reality is real and i learned this uh, through this compound and one of the great puzzles about this compound is why more people don't know about it. No no brotherhood initiated me. No lineage reaching back to the fall of Atlantis brought me into its circle. Uh, Therefore, I feel completely free to say anything I want. Nobody has ever come to me and said, you are spilling the beans. You are telling the secret. Uh, A long long time ago and you know, we all have different opinions. This is mine Uh, I hope it doesn't offend But a long long time ago. I took an oath to tell all Secrets that came my way Don't tell me a secret. I won't keep it I'm against secrets. I'm against hierarchies lineages Uh, All assumption of special knowledge on the part of anyone in the presence of anyone else is abhorrent to me. I mean, I am a true anarchist, first and foremost. So, uh, DMT, like all things in this world, has a physical body, a presence and a presentation. In this case, it looks rather like earwax. It is orange. It is crystalline. It smells vaguely of mothballs. And uh, for my money, it is the lapis, the quintessence, the universal panacea at the end of time has sent a reflection back through the temporal labyrinth and wherever this touches wherever this compresses the mystery is fully present so what is it then well it's an experience and I maintain it's the most intense experience you can have this side of the yawning grave without doubt I mean people say is it dangerous well, the answer is, only if you fear death by astonishment. <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a joke here. It's not a joke there. Because you, you find yourself ho- literally holding your heart to verify that you have not, in fact, had a coronary thrombosis induced by wonder, terror, reverence, and astonishment. So, here it is, the quintessence, the orange thing. The, it, was it transponded in from Arturus? Was it handed down through some ancient eldritch brotherhood that found this secret before the pyramids were built? Who can say? Whatever it is, wherever it comes from, here's what happens when you allow it to pass through. Uh, the blood-brain barrier of your own alchemical vessel, which is your body. The first thing that happens is that there is a sense as though all the air in the room had been sucked out, all the colors brighten. This is that increase in visual acuity that I made so much of Yesterday, all edges become sharp. Distant things stand out in their clarity. This is at one toque. At two toques, you close your eyes. You feel a sense of anesthesia seeping through your body. You close your eyes and you see a floral pattern rotating in space, usually yellow-orange. People who do this occasionally, and nobody does it a lot, call it the chrysanthemum. It's a floral pattern, like a pattern in a Chinese brocade. This forms and stabilizes, and then you either break through it, or you require one more toke. And these are matters of physiology, uh, shamanic intent, so forth and so on. The leather-lunged hash smokers among us have a leg up in this department. This is a spiritual discipline where the ability not to cough makes the difference between shunyata and, you know, try again, Sam. <clears throat> so, you take, let us assume, a third toque, long and slow, through a glass pipe, pure, you vaporize this stuff. You don't mix it with weed or oregano or any of that, which was done in the past. You want the pure stuff. And you take it in and in and in. And there is definitely somewhere in here a threshold, a threshold which you must exceed. And when you do that, this membrane-like thing, this chrysanthemum will actually part and there is a sound uh, like the crumpling of a plastic bread wrapper or the crackling of flame. A friend of mine says this is the radio of your soul exiting through the anterior fontanelle at the top of your head. Uh, could be. In any case, this crackling sound and a tone, a tone, a. there's this impression of transition and you're now 20 seconds deep into this experience there's an impression of transition there it's as though there were a series of tunnels or chambers that you are tumbling down being propelled by some kind of muscle behind you that is pushing you I mean yes birth canal yes yes of course But anyway, a tunnel, and what I've noticed about this tunnel is the walls and ceiling flux and come down to meet each other, and where they touch, they pull apart with a... And then you're propelled into the next space, and then the next, and then the next, and there is this... right (laughs) and then you are there and this is what i want to talk to you about because of all communities uh, i i hope perhaps collectively singly someone can say something enlightening about this then you are there and where is there it's underground how you know this you cannot say but there is an irreconcilable sense of enormous mass surrounding you in other words you are underground you're at the center of a mountain or something and you're in a room which aficionados call the dome and people will ask each other did you see the dome were you there it's softly lit indirectly lit, and the, uh, the walls, if such they be, are crawling with geometric hallucinations, uh, very brightly colored, very iridescent, with deep sheens and very high reflective surfaces. Everything is machine-like and polished and throbbing with energy, but that is not what immediately arrests my attention, what arrests my attention is the fact that this space is inhabited, that the immediate impression as you break into it is there is a cheer. The gnomes have learned a new way to say who. Rest? you break in to this space and are immediately swarmed by squeaking, self-transforming elf machines. These things which are made of light and grammar and sound that come chirping and squealing and tumbling toward you. And they say, hooray, welcome, you're here. And in my case, you send so many, you come so rarely. <clears throat> and and my, uh, my immediate impression, no matter how many times I do this, and I've done it maybe 30 or 40 times, which isn't a lot in a lifetime of worshipping it, my immediate impression is that they are welcoming. There is something going on which I, have over the years, come to call love. L-U-V. Not light utility vehicle, but love that is not like Eros or not like sexual attraction. I don't know what it's like exactly. It's almost like a physical thing. It's like a glue that pours out into this space. and. My immediate impression in there is I'm appalled. I'm appalled at how far I've come. And one of the strange things about DMT is that it does not affect your mind in the ordinary sense, in that, you know, drugs, they make you giggly, they frighten you, they stimulate you, they depress you. DMT does none of this. You go to that place with all your groceries. You're there, and you're there thinking, Jesus, H, fucking Christ, what is this? What is it? And there, because, and you're thinking, you know, I must be dead. I've done it this time, the the psychedelic mantra, I've done it this time, I I must be dead. And so you, you know, you, you think heart, heart, yes, Hmm. heart, Mm -hmm. pulse, pulse, yes, yes. And meanwhile, these things are literally in your face. And what they do is they jump into your chest and then they jump out again. And what they're doing, and this is the point, I think, what they're doing is they are singing, chanting, speaking, in some kind of language that is very bizarre to hear. But what is far more important is that you can see it. They speak in a language which you see. And this is completely confounding, because syntax is not something you ordinarily reach out and touch. And in this space, that's what's happening. And so like jeweled, self-dribbling basketballs, these things come running forward. And what they are doing with this visible language that they create is they're making gifts. They're making gifts for you. And they will say, "Zi <laughs> which condenses as something which looks like a cross between a Sopwith Camel, a Havana Cigar, a piece of abalone, an opal, and a nookie, and they offer it to you. And you're looking at this thing, and as you look at it, it also transforms, changes, speaks, sings, uh, undergoes metastasis, undergoes metamorphosis. And these things are just accumulating and each elf machine creature elbows others aside says look at this look at this take this choose me and as you direct your attention into these things you have the overwhelming conviction that if you could bring a single one of these objects back to this world that somehow You wouldn't have to say anything. You would just walk up to people and say, Friend? And people would say, Oh my God! You know, you got a piece of the action, the real action. So, um, this state of ecstatic frenzy and it's, it's like a Bugs Bunny cartoon running backwards in cyberspace or something. This state of incredible frenzy goes on for about three minutes. And all the time the elves are saying, Don't give way to wonder. Do not abandon yourself to amazement. Pay attention. Pay attention. Look at what we're doing. Look at what We're doing, and then do it. Do it! And it's this thing where then everything stops, and they wait, and you feel like a, a torch, a spark lit in your belly that begins to move up your esophagus. And eventually, when it reaches your mouth, your mouth just flies open and this language like stuff comes out acoustically it's the jinguo wai kuapaxi de cheni me ku ha de ngi dip dip ge pi jing is de jinguo wai di book game But you're, you're not hearing it. The startled friends who sent you to this place are putting up with this. What you're experiencing is a visual modality where these tones are surfaces, shading, colors, insets, jewels. You are making something. You know, erase, move forward, add cerulean, put in stippling. It's that sort of thing. And and they go mad with joy when you do this. And then, uh, you know, this goes on for about 30 seconds, and then there is like a ripple through the system and you realize these two continua are being pulled apart. And I had one trip where the... the And often it's very erotic, although I'm not sure that's the word, but it's something... It's almost like sex is the surface of something of which this is the volume. And I'm a great fan of sex. I don't mean to denigrate it. I mean to raise DMT to a very high status. Uh, but it, it's, it's astonishing. A- and one trip, as the pull-away maneuver began, all the elves turned simultaneously and looked at me and said, Deja vu. Deja vu. So this is an experience which in some form i mean it will be different for each one of you but in some form at least what will be similar to my description is how dramatic it will be it will hit you as hard as it hit me if you do it right this to me this experience is of a fundamentally different order than any other experience this side of the yawning grave. And why religions have not been built around it? Why empires have not risen and fallen around the control of its sources? Why theology has not enshrined it as its central exhibit for the presence of the other in the human world? I don't know. I can tell the secret. As you notice, nothing shuts me up. Uh, But why this is not four-inch headlines on every newspaper on the planet, I cannot understand, because I don't know what news you were waiting for, but this is the news that I was waiting for. Uh, It's an incredible challenge to, to human understanding to try and make sense of this. And I started out, you know, reading Jung, doing my Hindu, you know, getting up to speed with all that, studying Zen Buddhism, studying Shamanism. The thing that puzzles me about DMT is how little trace there is of it in the human world. I can't point to a period in European art or the art of some group of islanders somewhere and say that is very much like DMT. It isn't. And yet the DMT thing is it's like an avalanche of orgasmic beauty, but a certain kind of beauty. The only words that I can find for the kind of beauty that it is is bizarre, alien, outlandish, outré freaky, and at the very edge of what the human mind seems to be able to hold. Well, where is this coming from, and what is happening? And and this is what I like to discuss with people such as yourselves, who have wide experience in the world and in the realms of the unseen. This has to be taken seriously. In other words, the it's only a hallucination thing. That poor shit is just passe. I mean, reality is only a hallucination for crying out loud. Haven't you heard? So that takes care of that. It's only a hallucination. What we've got here, folks, is an intelligent entelechy of some sort that is frantic to communicate with human beings for some reason. And uh, the possibilities can be logically enumerated. I mean, what we've got here is either this is an extraterrestrial, you know, evolved in a, around a different star, Possibly with a different biology may not even be made of matter came across an enormous distance sometime, maybe long ago has some agenda Which we may or may not be able to conceive of this is it the real thing as the little girl said in poltergeist They're here. So that's one possibility. That's just one possibility uh, and I I present these without judgment because I'm not sure Uh, uh, if an extraterrestrial wanted to interact with a human society and it had ethics that forbade it from landing trillion-ton beryllium ships on the United Nations plaza, in other words, if it were subtle, I can see Hiding yourself inside the shamanic intoxication You would say let's analyze these people. Okay, they're kind of hard-headed rationalists Except they have this phenomenon called getting loaded and when they get loaded they accept whatever happens to them So let's hide inside the load and we'll talk to them from there and they'll never realize that we're of a different status than pink elephants okay that's one possibility now another possibility is that this is not about extraterrestrials flight and enormous technologies and distant homelands that uh, and this is maybe closer to friendlier to pagan notions that there is a parallel continuum nearby, essentially right here, uh, call it fairyland, call it the western realm, whatever you like, but you don't go there in starships, you go there through magical doorways, which are opened via ritual and, uh, and things like that that is a possibility as well certainly human folklore in all times and places except western europe for the last 300 years has insisted that these parallel domains of intelligence and and uh, uh, organization exist there is a third possibility which i leave it to you to decide whether this is the more conservative position or the more radical position and I reached this reluctantly and I'm not sure this is my position but uh, these things have a weird these types as I call them these self-transforming machine elves these these syntactical homunculi have a very weird relationship to human beings first of all they love us. They care for some reason. Wh- whoever and whatever they are, they're far more aware of us than we are aware of them. i mean, witness the fact that they welcome me. Uh, so, is it possible that at the end of the 20th century, at the end of 500 years of materialism, reductionism, positivism, What we're about to discover is probably the least likely denouement any of us expected out of our dilemma. What we're about to discover is that death has no sting. That what you penetrate on DMT is an ecology of human souls in another dimension of some sort. I mean, this is hair-raising to me, and I spent my whole adolescence and early adulthood getting free from uh, Catholicism and its assumptions, and I never imagined that a thorough exploration of life's mysteries would lead to the conclusion that, in fact, uh, this is but a prelude. We are in a very tiny womb. Of some sort. Our lives are gestations, and this is not where we are destined to unfold ourselves into what it means to be human. This is some kind of a metamorphic stage, uh, like the pupa of a butterfly. And so, uh, th- this Is deep water. Because, you know, we are fairly agitated over the fact that we fear the planet is dying and us with it. This stuff raises the issue that you don't know what dying is. Therefore, it's very uncertain exactly what sort of an attitude we should take to it. And as I say, I am not advocating a position. Mysteries are not unsolved problems. They are mysteries. When you stand naked in the presence of the mystery, it is still utterly and completely mysterious. But I enjoy talking to people about this because I think that the human body, the human mind, these are tools for the soul to use in the effort to unlock its meaning and its destiny. And uh, millions of people, perhaps billions of people, have gone to the grave without knowing that this is possible, this experience that I've just described to you. And it's perfectly harmless. I mean, I think that if science would Uh, back out of politics and do its work we could establish that DMT is the most harmless the safest of all hallucinogens the fact that it occurs naturally in the human brain is the first clue to its the fact that it's benign the second clue is the fact that uh, it only lasts eight to twelve minutes. What that means to a pharmacologist is the body perfectly understands what to do with this compound. You take a hit of DMT and your body says, oh, I recognize this. Uh, Activate deanimation cycle, activate demethylation cycle, activate... It knows what to do. And so within ten minutes you're down. Uh, a a drug that you take and 48 hours later you're lying around in warm baths and refusing telephone calls is a drug you shouldn't have taken Uh, because it's hitting you too hard that's not it's not clean it's not smooth DMT the most powerful hallucinogen known to man and science clears your system in 15 minutes I mean you're so down, you, can't, you don't have a small headache or need to take a nap or anything. You're ready to do phone calls. Um, so how can it be then that a compound which each of us carries right here, right in the pineal gland, right in the Ajna chakra, the Philosopher's Stone is no further away than that. How can this be secret from us? How can we be trapped in a dimension of such limitation and such mundaneness when our own nervous systems and the ecology around us and our own history over the past half million years argues that this is what we were born and bred for. This is where we belong. This is what at play in the fields of the goddess must mean. And somehow history has uh, made us dysfunctional, buried the mystery, made it, uh, uh, if at best, a piece of secret knowledge jealously guarded by somebody. I mean I don't know there are lots of mystery cults and secret societies in the world I don't know if any of them are guarding DMT as a secret I I, it may be so no one told me to keep my mouth shut Uh, if a, a very suggestive short story I'm sure many of you know and love the the Argentine surrealist writer Jorge Luis Borges Well, Borges has a book, I believe it's called Labyrinths, and in Labyrinths there is a short story called The Sect of the Phoenix, and it says there is a sacrament older than mankind. The sectarians have been the victims of every persecution in human history, and the sectarians have been the purveyors Of every persecution in history. These sectarians are not identifiable by race or place or language or time. To the adept the mystery appears ridiculous, yet they do not speak of it. One child can initiate another. It is orange. Ruins are propitious places do it in the moonlight in the thresh at, at the thresholds of buildings and that's all it said it's a page and a half and it suggests and and see here's the thing I, I mean I am not as articulate on this subject as I wish I could be if this is not the secret that these lineages are guarding then they're guarding an empty house This is the secret. It is. It is. It cannot be anything else. It is the neoplatonic one. It is the transubstantiant object, the panis supersubstantialis of the alchemists. And and, and I'm not saying that people have known about this for a long time. Uh, DMT is in many plants, as I said but spread very thinly. And we don't have historical records of anyone ever concentrating it. I've done the DMT uh, plant preparations of the Amazon, the snuffs, and the ayahuasca. And on ayahuasca, if it is heavily laced with the DMT-containing plant, after hours of breath work and drumming alone in the jungle, you can begin to open it up to the place the DMT will carry you to in 45 seconds in an Upper East Side apartment, uh, whether you like it or not. Some of you may have seen, I don't, years and years ago, this B movie about a guy who has a big ranch in Mexico and one of the campesinos comes rushing back from having encountered a brontosaur in the forest and he can only point inarticulately at the woods and say, something, 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 something. and that's what I am, I'm a monkey and I've come back to the troop. and I'm telling you there's something over the next hill that is off the scale off the scale and I have made it my business to, you know, delve I'm a delver, I'm a noethic archaeologist uh, there the, obscure heresies and strange rites and all of this stuff, been there, done that. It's all pale soup compared to this. And so I I hype it to you simply to try and inspire you to explore it. We are at the present state in the position of explorers of the new world 50 years after Columbus. We have notebook entries. We have partial maps, but we don't have a complete map of what this thing is. It's another dimension. It is literally another dimension. I took uh, DMT to a a llama of great accomplishment. Not one of the grab-ass can of Budweiser welded to the good right hand llamas, but. A real llama this guy was over 90 when he smoked DMT and uh, he sensed his wheel has turned Uh, and he said to me he said it's the lesser lights he said you can't go further into the bardo and return and so I think that we stand at the brink of an enormous frontier Call it incorporeality, call it non-material existence, or, you know, bite the bullet. Call it death. But this is the frontier that we stand on the edge of. This is what history has been about. History has been some kind of suicide plot for 15,000 years. Not a moment passed that the plot was not advanced closer and closer and closer and closer to completion. And now in the 20th century, you know, we see that this thing, this transcendental object at the end of time, this attractor has been that chose us out of the animal kingdom, And sculpted the neocortex, opposed the thumb, stood us on our hind legs, gave us binocular vision. This thing is calling us toward itself across eons of cosmic time. We are asked to mirror it, and as we mirror it, we become more of its essence. And as we become more of its essence, we leave behind the animal organization that we were Uh, cast in in the beginning and what this is about who knows you know is this a drama of cosmic redemption is it uh, uh, the transcendental other at the end of time is it a gnostic demon is it il what is it we do not know but I really believe we are in the era when we will come to know And what the psychedelics are, are periscopes in the temporal dimension. If you want to see a little bit into the future, elevate your psychedelic periscope outside of the three-dimensional continuum and peer around. For thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, we have been pulled toward this omega point. The earth is like an egg. It has come to its moment of fructification, the dawn that has been anticipated since we were herding our cattle across the plains of Africa is now upon us. The east is streaked with the blush of rosy dawn, it is coming upon us and I think that it will redeem history, that history is not a nightmare, it is A passage it is an initiation think of the fetus in the womb at the moment of transition surely it must despair the walls are closing in it's being crushed and strangled gone are the endless amniotic oceans of a few months before the weightlessness the effortless delivery of food through the umbilical cord suddenly it's just boundaries and agony and crushing pressure, that's where we are and we are going to have to shed history like a snake sheds its skin if we want to slip off into hyperspace where I think all of magical humanity is awaiting us and cheering us on, lending their weight. They're all out there, you know, Proclus and Plotinus and Plato and Hypatia and Henry Cornelius Agrippa and John Dee and Robert Flood and Eliaphas Levy. They're all out there pulling for us. And every shaman and shamaness, every magician, practitioner, as far back in time as you go, was part of the plan, the conjuration. The great work, the distillation of the quintessence, history is a magical invocation. And at the end of that invocation, if it is correctly done, all boundaries will dissolve into the stone, the lapis, a transdimensional vehicle that can move through space and time, that is the collectivity of all human souls free at last in what William Blake called the divine imagination and you don't have to wait for the general dispensation you can join up anytime by hyperspatializing your metaphors and your point of view through psychedelic symbiosis with the plants that are pouring this hyperdimensional Gaian vision into the minds of anyone who will detoxify themselves from history and, uh, and linear thinking and but open themselves to the presence of the transformative mystery that is going to leave this planet unrecognizable to us within our lifetimes. So that's uh, the basic spiel, and And I think it raises a lot of questions, and yours is first. The answer is yes, uh, yes. The question is, are there herbs in the temperate zone that contain DMT, and uh, yes. There are certain grasses, Phalaris arundinacea, Phalaris tuberosa. These can be ordered from plant dealers or gotten, ironically enough, from agricultural experiment stations because these are pasturage grasses. A lot of people are doing wonderful work right now learning how to make DMT preparations out of native plants. Uh, the, The mature phalaris grass, it's very diffuse, the DMT, so what people are doing is they're getting the seeds and they're sprouting them in a sprouter and then they're taking the sprouted seeds and air drying them Well, you can imagine how powdery sprouts become if you air dry them. Well, then you can powder up a handful of these sprouts and uh, roll that, twist that into a bomber and come very, very close to the flash point. The other thing, I mean, since I'm talking to recipe-oriented magicians, the other thing you need to understand if you want to work in this area is that the DMT can ordinarily not be taken orally because there is an enzyme system in your intestines called the monoamine oxidase system then it will destroy the DMT but the good news is there are certain compounds called monoamine oxidase inhibitors didn't you know it if you take a monoamine oxidase inhibitor and then you take DMT, the DMT will survive the gut and pass into the bloodstream and pass the blood-brain barrier. So here is a very important piece of practical information I'm about to give you. If you want to inhibit your monoamine oxidase in order to uh, make DMT trips longer or mushroom trips longer and more intense, or to activate DMT if you only have a little bit of it, then what you should get are the seeds of Pergamum Harmala, P-E-R-G-A-M-U-M, Pergamum Harmala, H-A-R-M-A-L-A. You can either order it under that name from seed dealers or go to an Iranian market uh, and buy what is called Hurmal, h-u-r-m-a-l this is simply the harmless seeds they use it as an incense uh, to fumigate rooms but two grams don't take more two grams of this uh, macerated in a mortar and pestle with spring water taken from a spring at the new moon near a crossroads <laughs> will uh uh inhibit your mao it will inhibit your mao consequently then when you smoke the bomber of phalaris dust it will grab on or you can even smoke mushrooms then and they will grab on uh so knowing how to inhibit mao is one of the key techniques in this kind of herbal shamanic magic Uh, Other plants that contain DMT, and here's one you all should be aware of, because it's probably right around here, is uh, Desmanthus illinoisensis, Illinois Bundle Weed. It's a a rank weed, I've not seen it except in the dried form, but people have grown hundreds of pounds of this stuff in a few months, and the root bark. Has the highest concentration of DMT ever measured in any plant it's it's higher than the ayahuasca admixtures used in the Amazon pardon in the root bark the root bark which uh, you, you dry the root and then scrape the bark off and you'll get this reddish root bark the red is actually the DMT Varola trees in the Amazon shed DMT in their sap, and it's always a blood-red sap. And to show you how strong it is, uh, the Indians in the Amazon, some of the tribes, they roll their arrow points directly into that sap, and it's a paralytic poison in the bloodstream of monkeys and small animals. so there is a great deal of work is being done right now and you should if you're of an experimental and herbal and alchemical and magical bent uh, people are creating what they call ayahuasca analogs this is where you use local plants to create a brew which is chemically equivalent to an amazonian hallucinogen and of course you have the satisfaction that it's yours. It's your magical recipe. No one on earth is doing quite what you've got. And uh, it, it's very, uh, a lot of interesting work is being done, and uh, you'll hear more about this. In fact, Jonathan Ott just wrote a book called Ayahuasca Analogues, in which the state of the art. Is spelled out and it would be worth your while to check that out if you're an experimentalist yeah The the question is is there a more is there a simple reagent test for the presence of DMT the answer is sort of you can do a paper chromatographic test and all you need is a little a little UV light and some chromatography paper and some solvent dishes I mean, it's at the level of a 7th grade uh, science project. Uh, Yes, I don't know how much I should say on this subject. I'm probably about to say too much. But at one gathering I go to, uh, one of the people who's a very regular part of that particular posse is a wheat breeder. So when he heard about the Phalaris, he was a geneticist and a wheat breeder, and he has been working very quietly on his own at, to produce super strains of Polaris. And I think we will soon see super strains, because the underground community is incredibly creative in this area. The, the compound I talked about yesterday, Salvia Divinorum. That's all underground work. Brett Blosser, the anthropologist who discovered it, is a complete freak. Uh, the guy, the chemist who extracted it, who would prefer I don't put out his name, is a complete freak. And the people who then did the confirmation studies, my brother and his band of performing pharmacologists, all freaks so we actually we do not take ourselves seriously enough I mean we have our scientists we have our philosophers we have our thinkers our legal experts we are a complete community and it's no longer in my mind even necessary to publish in straight journals and to seek a pat on the head from you know the American pharmacology community Uh, they don't understand what these things are for anyway yes yes I'll repeat this um, and strengthen once again my case to the guy who owns the company that he should pay me for God's sake um, if you want a catalog of extremely rare and useful psychoactive and magical plants probably the most complete in the world the company is called of the jungle P.O. Box 1801, Sebastopol, S E B A S T O P O L, California, 95472. Write and ask for a catalog and tell them George Bush sent you. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Don't tell them that. They won't send you the catalog. <laughs> Well, let me... I didn't mean to diss Castaneda as a metaphor-maker. No, I think The Teachings of Don Juan is a tremendous book. Uh, I'm very suspicious of, of some of his later stuff. It's interesting what you said, because you know the famous Crow transformation in The Teachings of Don Juan has been traced, and I'm sure many of you know this book, has been traced to George Macdonald's book, Through the Gates of the Silver Key. Uh, And and George Macdonald was a friend of Evans Vance. So I think what we're getting here is a mining of late 19th century English folklore by Castaneda. Nevertheless, uh, the, the presence of these small entities has been a part of folklore for a long, long time. Uh, elementals, types. What puzzled me about, what puzzles me, I guess, is I've spent a lot of time in this magical literature and, and art historical area, and the descriptions don't quite match. I can't quite convince myself that the, the, the sprites, the afrites, the nixies, the Jinns, that these creatures of the woodland fae are the same thing or i don't know whether i am contaminated by an early love of science fiction and well again close but no banana uh there all these popular aliens that are running around you know the whitley streboids and all these things are to my are are much more mundane than what i encountered i mean what i encountered was terrifyingly not human terrifyingly alien and i i just do not quite get and madame blavatsky was into it and they're always saying you know the i don't know they're very sort of cut and dried about it and when i encounter an extraterrestrial alien or a creature from another dimension the main thing that's happening for me is the implications are blowing my mind they don't. They seem totally immune to the implication. Yeah. Well, a sufficient amount of DMT is smoked uh, uh, west of the Pacific Coast Highway that it wouldn't surprise me uh, if the writers of Star Trek, I mean, uh, were on to this. Um, yes. What am, What I What is not much talked about the part of the experience which is anomalous and maybe. People who know more about magical literature than I do can correct me but this what the elves are really interested in is this stuff which I call visible language that's the whole point of the encounter is to exhibit it and to get you to do it well now first of all think for a minute about ordinary language it's really weird it's the weirdest thing we do I mean if you were looking for the thumbprint of God on creation human language would be a good candidate because look we're supposed to be some kind of animal who just went a little further than the next guy but to get out of that Shakespeare and Milton is a pretty amazing accomplishment. Hardly to speak of the mathematical languages that we generate. So something happened. Some people think only 35,000 years ago. Imagine if that's true. I mean, I don't care. Some people say 150,000 years ago. But to speak, to take small mouth noises, and to turn them into signifiers for symbols and relationships uh, in spite of some people 's en- enthusiasm for cetaceans and dolphins, I just am not overwhelmed by the evidence. I mean, n- it, to me, you know it is a miracle to be able to speak poetry. It is a miracle. I mean, when Coleridge wrote and south and south and southward, I we fled, and it grew wondrous cold and ice massed high went floating by as green as emerald. I mean that's language and uh, it's magic. And we have a fascination then we also paint, then we sculpt, then we write, then we create electronic databases, then film television clearly what we want to do is we want to communicate visually and these things are saying there's a way to do it do it and I don't understand do we all have to be loaded on DMT all the time can you learn to do this the gentleman who asked about dreams here's a piece of information that is critical in this jigsaw puzzle if you have smoked DMT at any time in the past it is possible to have a dream in which people are running around and you're checked into the mars hotel and the luggage is lost and this and that and in the middle of all that someone drags out a little glass pipe and hands it to you it will happen it will happen in the dream not a memory not a simulacrum it will really happen well now to me that's an amazing piece of data because what it's saying is you can do it on the natch you may have to be dead asleep but still on the natch this can be done and the lucid dreamers the biofeedback people the people who claim these wonderful things that you can do with sleep and dream and programming I challenge them teach people to have DMT dreams in their sleep, and then let's figure out how to drag that puppy into the light so that we can do it at will on the Natch. Uh, one just one second, and one thing that I have come to believe is that we remember no more than five percent of our dreams, and it's the most mundane five percent, I think. Uh, And there's scientific evidence to support this. Remember I said DMT is in the human brain? Well, it concentrates in the human cerebrospinal fluid on a 24-hour cycle, and it reaches its peak of concentration between 3 and 4 a.m. in most people. That's when the deep REM sleep is happening. When you give somebody DMT, they, they lay back, They close their eyes, and the way you, the guide, the sitter, I don't like the word guide, you, the sitter, the way you can tell that they're getting off is their eyes dart wildly behind their closed eyelids. It means they're in REM. They're in REM sleep. They've been immediately shoved into deep dreaming. So I believe that what DMT is doing in normal human metabolism is it mediates the descent, the spiral descent into dream and that every single night we are reunited with the boundaryless oceanic mystery of being that we are so frantic about in waking life and so distant from and that if we could in fact just engineer a drug that would allow us to remain fully conscious as we drift deeper into dream we would need no other drug or substance that that's where we want to go and i think that's where history is headed what the archaic revival is about is a revivification of the aboriginal dream time we are going to live in the imagination we are preparing to decamp from three-dimensional space I mean, yes, the Earth is the cradle of the human race, but you don't stay in the cradle forever, you know, and uh, and it, it's something like going into dream. It's something like taking the hypertechnical virtual reality internet head of the snake and inserting the shamanic late Paleolithic ecstatic orgiastic tail of the snake and then you have the Ouroboric completion then you have uh, the quintessence and the work is complete and history ends and we live then in the light of the stone made manifest well It it definitely has something, this mystery that we're talking about, it definitely has something to do with sound, and the magical role of sound. Uh, Ayahuasca is a sort of different way of sectioning the DMT experience, because ayahuasca is orally active, unfolds over hours, uh, is not as dramatic as DMT but the people who use ayahuasca as a ritual on a weekly basis what their uh, practice consists of is they take this stuff and then they sing they sing like crazy and then when they stop singing and people light a cigarette and take a leak and so forth and you're listening to these conversations you hear people say stuff about the shaman-like I liked the part with the olive drab and the silver but when it became magenta and moved toward orange I thought he was over the top. What what kind of a criticism of a song is that? And the answer is sound has become a visually beheld medium. Yes, so the reason I have the reason I'm interested in something as techno-nerdy as virtual reality is because you could, com- you could program a virtual reality so that when you went ah, an iridescent blue line would be keyed to that, to descend into the space. And I, I'm very interested in environmental and electronic simulations of psychedelic states. But, but we're not going to do better. Than the psychedelics if we can do as well it will be a miracle i mean you see more beauty in the first wave of psilocybin than the human race has produced in the past five thousand years and who are you you know <laughs> yes no i promised this guy Ben and i felt his flash of loathing <laughs> That's. I hadn't considered that, that that sounds possible. I mean, we're definitely coming to some enormous cusp, and whether you think it's the cusp of cusps, or just a big cusp, it's hard to say. Somebody faxed me, I got a fax right before I came here. I don't know who sent it to me, it was just an anonymous fax, but in huge letters it said, when you strip away the hype." It's just another concrescence. <laughs> yes. it's, it's interesting and that's a good question. The answer is yes and no. Uh, obviously a, there is hardly anything more personal than a psychedelic experience. It is a kind of summation of who you are and it's viewed through the filters of your personality nevertheless when you put a whole bunch of dmt trips together certain things seem to emerge my notion coming at it from a sort of Jungian attitude is if we had to say what is the archetype of dmt the archetype is the circus it's the circus and let me say why first of all a circus is a place of wild, exotic activity. And it clowns are, you don't have a circus without clowns. And uh, clowns are wonderful for children. A circus is a wonderful place for a child. DMT, there is something very, very weirdly childlike about it in a very unchildish way. Uh, some of you may know the, thir- the 52nd fragment of Heraclitus, where he says the aeon is a child at play with colored balls. The aeon is the child that you encounter in the elf dome. Uh, uh, so, uh, but the circus has other connotations than simply the three rings and the clowns. Uh, Eros is present entwined with thanatos in the form of the nearly naked lady in the tiny spangled costume who is working without nets hanging by her teeth up near the top of the big tent and personally, my, own, as my earliest experience of Eros was that lady in the tiny spangled costume. I was so small, I was wrapped up in something and being held, and I was horny as hell. Uh, uh, so there's that. And then there is also, radiating off from the central ring, the freak show. The goat-faced boy the lady in the bottle and uh, you know the three-toed alligator kid and all of that that's there the wiggy weird kinky strange alien stuff and then uh, if you think about the archetype not so much of the circus but of the carnival the carnival represents a breakthrough from another dimension because you live in some jerkwater town in some I almost said Iowa but some t- and it's like normal and then the carnival comes to town and children are told you can't stay out and play the Kearney people are in town and what does it mean well they may fuck differently than we do, they may steal things, they're not like us, they've had more than one marriage, some of them. Uh, And then the carnival people are there, and the hoochie-coochie dancers and the whole thing, and then they fold it up and they go away, just like a DMT trip. And every little boy and girl in the world worth their salt wants to join the circus. Of course! and go away with the tattooed lady and the tigers and all that so it is the archetype of the circus so then i have seen many many people take dmt and some get what i get which is it's sort of gone beyond the circus it's the circus but uh, the circus as presented on the prime or something like that uh, but one woman who was an anthropologist who I think got a sub-threshold dose she had a very interesting trip because it was a light trip but with no prompting from me she said I was at a carnival midway but uh, it was after hours and there was nobody there and there were just those ice cream, those square papers for holding ice cream were just blowing in the wind and getting caught in chain link fences it was like a sub-threshold dose. Well, then if she'd done more, she would have arrived there eight hours earlier when the thing was happening. And if she'd done yet another toque, it would have moved off into the zone of the truly weird.
0: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, uh, do you think that Terence maybe thinks that well, DMT might be worth looking into? (laughs) I don't know about you, but there were a few riffs in that talk that reinforced my belief that at his most basic, well, Terrence was truly a bard. And what strikes me the most is that he was speaking extemporaneously. Few people can even write that poetically after a few revisions, and here's Terrence waxing poetic uh, whenever the mood struck him. I may not agree with everything he said, but I've never been so captivated by any other speaker as I have been by Terence McKenna. He was truly one of a kind, and we were so lucky that he appeared in an era when his thoughts could be captured and replayed years later, like just now. As I said, I don't always agree with Terence, but when he was talking about having a dream in which he smoked DMT and then he got high in his dream. Well, long before I ever heard Terrence say that, it had happened to me. And it's happened to me more than once. I don't know what else to say about that other than, uh, well, it's really freaky. <laughs> and do you remember when Terence was talking about feeling that he was under the middle of a mountain when the DMT breakthrough occurred? Well, when he was saying that, I realized that my own DMT experiences were usually of being above ground level but uh, sometimes inside of a backlit, uh, amber-ceiling great hall of some kind. I guess it could have been a cave, uh, which I guess (laughs) would also make it inside of a mountain if I was above ground. So uh, maybe our experiences were more alike than I thought. Again, this shows me how similar experiences can be described in a slightly different language and possibly throw future explorers off a bit. This again, to me at least, shows us how important it is to continue to develop virtual reality experiences to show, without words, what was going on in our minds. And one last thing, during his talk, Terence mentioned using MAO inhibitors to accentuate various experiences. Let me just say that this can be extremely dangerous if you don't know exactly what you're doing. So before you even think about experimenting with an MAO inhibitor like Syrian Rue for example, be sure to first go to arrowid.org, e r o w i d.org and do a little research. I'm sure you're not going to be disappointed if you do. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.